We're moving into the Christmas season. And for me, this is still one of my favorite times of year, uh, even though my wife makes me put lights up on the roof, which is not a lot of fun, but it makes her happy, and I like a happy wife. Uh, but if you actually stop to think about it, one of the challenging things about the Christmas season is the Christmas story as it relates to the birth of Jesus. Because if we're honest, there's so much that really is unbelievable about it. And a lot of people don't believe it, and I understand that. Uh, People I've talked with uh, think those who were making up this religion that we call Christianity uh, had to come up with some myth about the birth of Jesus in order to give Jesus some credibility later on. But, But does it? I mean, how do you even prove something like that? In fact, if we were intellectually honest, we'd say it actually detracts credibility. But here's the thing. Christianity doesn't hinge on the birth of Jesus. It hinges on a much more important event, the resurrection of Jesus. And if someone, honestly, if they can predict and pull off their own death and resurrection, how they got into this world isn't all that important. And yet, as unbelievable as the birth narratives are, when you get the backstory, the birth narrative becomes, goes from unbelievable to remarkable. Because you need to know the Christmas story doesn't begin with a couple trying to figure out how they got pregnant. It begins with the couple trying to figure out how they are ever going to get pregnant. And they're worried they're never going to get pregnant. And it doesn't begin with an angel giving a birth announcement in Matthew or Luke. It actually begins with God making a promise thousands of years before in the book of Genesis. And not just any promise. It was an unbelievable, incoherent impossible promise. Because for the person who received the promise, it would have made no sense whatsoever in his cultural context. And yet, this promise, thousands of years before, sets up the events around Christmas. In fact, especially for if you're someone who's wrestling to believe in God, the God of Jesus or faith, and was Jesus really who he said he was? Or should I even really care about this made-up religion? What you learn today should cause you to reconsider because this very specific promise was made thousands of years before. We're going to look at it today. And it's just one example of what makes Christmas and the story around the birth of Jesus so trustworthy and believable because this promise is made 2,000 years, 2,000 years before Jesus was born. This is around the year 2090 BC. It's found in the book of Genesis. And again, if you're someone you're just not sure about the Bible, don't think Bible. Instead, think of about this ancient document that the Jews entitled Genesis. It's over 3,000 years old. And this ancient document called Genesis tells us how the Jewish nation began. So it was very, very precious and important to the Jewish people, so much so that they copied it meticulously and they handed it down through the centuries and eventually it became part of what they would call the Jewish scriptures. Now, people who would say, and I have these conversations with people who say, oh, you can't trust such things because they were copied and edited hundreds of times over, over hundreds of years, and they've, you know, they've been changed and there are errors. You just need to know, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just being honest, that these people are speaking just out of ignorance. It just simply shows that they have no actual knowledge of how meticulously copywriters were to the point that if they were on the last letter or the last punctuation mark of what they were copying and they got it wrong, they would literally burn the entire thing and start over from scratch. 
That's how serious they were. And eventually the Jewish scriptures were added to the documents into part of the New Testament. Uh, scriptures were added to the documents of what we call the New Testament. And a group of religious leaders put that all together to something we refer to now as the Bible. But the Bible didn't give us Genesis. Genesis is this ancient Jewish document. And in it, we find this extraordinary, unbelievable, incoherent promise that God made to a man named Abram that we later know as Abraham. So here's how Christmas actually began. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Now, why God chose Abram, we don't know any more than we know why God chose Mary and Joseph. But God tells Abram, I want you to leave everything you, need to, everything you know. Now, you need to understand that in this culture, this was very dangerous. Because in ancient times, security and safety had everything to do with your clan, your family, your relatives, power and numbers, especially when it came to your blood relatives. So he's asked to do something that is extraordinarily dangerous. I want you to leave the security of your home, and I'll tell you when you get to the place I want you to go. And then this is where the promise begins. God says to Abram, and I will make you a great nation. Now, we need to know that Abram's about 75 years old at this point. He doesn't have any children. So maybe he thought, great nation, like maybe we could just start with dad, like just start with father. Like I'm not going to live long enough to see grandfather, let alone a great nation. And the promise continues. And I will promise you, and I will make your name great. I'm going to make you famous. If, and Abram's like, if, if I leave everyone and everything I know, like nobody's going to even remember that I existed. God continues, and you will be a blessing. Now, within this cultural context and these ancient times, this didn't even make any sense because this was a time of extraordinary violence. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, maybe one of the things that kind of bugs you a little bit is the extraordinary bloodshed that you see in the Old Testament. But what you need to understand, it's kind of like, it's just what we see, for example, recently in Israel and Palestine is just a glimpse of what existed. That, like, this was just the norm. This is what you did. People were not in the habit of blessing anyone other than their own family and their own clan, and yet God says to Abram, you will be a blessing. In fact, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's saying something extraordinary. He's saying every Every people group, every tribe, every clan, every gathering of families, every language and nation, every person on the earth will ultimately and eventually be impacted and be touched directly and indirectly through what I'm going to do through you, Abram. Now again, again, in this culture, nations, they conquered each other, they enslaved each other, they plundered each other, but nations did not bless nations. Tribes did not bless tribes. Clans did not bless clans. This made absolutely no sense in this culture. And yet in Genesis, it tells us that Abraham told to believe the unbelievable, the impossible, the incoherent. He said to God, like, I don't know how any of this can work. I don't have any children. I'm too old. But Abram, later called Abraham, chose to believe this impossible to fulfill promise. Now, you may know that eventually Abraham and Sarah did have a son. His name was Isaac, and then Isaac had a son. And we'll pull up the family tree right here. So Abraham and Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob. Now, the interesting thing is there's another name that should be in Jacob's spot, and that name is Esau, because Isaac ended up, he had twins. He had Esau and Jacob. Esau was technically the oldest, 
and Esau's name should be there, but Jacob was sneaky. In fact, there's just so much dysfunction and chaos. I feel like especially around Christmas time, uh, the dysfunction that some of us have in our own family, like it can get really amplified. And as you think about gatherings, you should just go home today and just read this part of the Bible. It will make you feel so much better about your family, okay? Because like your siblings, your parents, your children, maybe your grandchildren, it just was unbelievable, the chaos and the dysfunction. Uh, Jacob stole the right from his older brother to have the blessing of the older brother if he hadn't, we'd have the name Esau instead of Jacob there. Uh, Abraham, uh, for example, lied to his wife. Imagine this, ladies. They get to Egypt. Sarah, apparently in her 60s or or in her 70s, is apparently still so beautiful that Abraham is afraid that Pharaoh is going to want to put Sarah in his harem, you know, kill the husband, steal the wife. So Abraham comes up with a great idea. Let's just tell everybody, you're my sister. How well would that go over with you guys, okay? So this, and this is the guy that God has chosen to bless the entire world. There's just so much dysfunction and chaos. And eventually Jacob has 12 sons. Ten of those sons don't like one of their brothers, Joseph. And many of you, you may remember this story. They decide to throw Joseph in a well and then they debate. Do we kill him or do we sell him? And again, some of you think you've got problems with your siblings, okay? Do we sell him? Do we kill him? And they decide, well, we don't profit if we kill him. So they end up selling him to slave traders. He ends up in Egypt and one of the most amazing turn of events in history. And again, if it's been a long time or you've never read the story of Joseph, you should go home. You should read it this month. It's just incredible because as many years go by, Joseph eventually becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And eventually the entire family ends up in Egypt and where they do, in fact, as God promised, become a nation. But the problem is they're a nation of slaves. And several hundred years go by and yet the promise of God to Abraham was known to these people that we will be a nation. And it's like, great, that came true, but we're a nation of slaves. God has promised that to bless the whole world through this nation. They're thinking, well, that can't possibly come true. Then God sends a deliverer, Moses. And you may know enough that by the time Moses gets done with Pharaoh, the Egyptians are not feeling very blessed by the descendants of Abraham. And then they make their way across the Red Sea, and they make their way into what's referred to as the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, and the inhabitants, the Canaanites who lived in that part of the world, they're not feeling very blessed by the presence of Abraham's descendants either. And you read these parts of the Old Testament, and there's just so much violence and so much bloodshed, and at times, it's, it's like, it's just so offensive. It's like, how can this be part of the story of God? And the short answer is, what offends us was normal to them. And one of the reasons that we're so offended by all the violence of the Old Testament is because we're on this side of Christmas. We see the world in a completely different way, but this is, this is part of the story and the journey that God is unfolding and the story of Christmas to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to Abram, a promise that would eventually impact the entire world in creating a whole new worldview. Abraham became a family. This family became a nation. The nation becomes a kingdom known as the kingdom of Israel. And so the first part of God's promise, given centuries before, comes true. And about 400 years later, under King David, peace treaties are made with all the surrounding nations in this part of the world because David is the warrior king. 
And David is followed by his son Solomon, who was just extraordinarily wise, and he was the builder king. And Solomon expanded the reach of the nation so that people, such that people from all over the world would come to see the wonders of Solomon's construction and to sit at his feet and listen to his wisdom. So they had become a nation, and as promised, for the first time in history, it seemed that God was finally going to fulfill the, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed by you part of the promise, because for the first time in history, the descendants of Abraham had great power and influence. They're finally positioned to do something significant in the world, but then Solomon makes a fatal mistake, because then God has to keep another promise. God had warned Solomon, if you forsake me and go after other gods, false, made-up gods, I'm going to divide the nation, and I'm going to tear down the temple that you had built in my name. And sure enough, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom. And they would never again have the opportunity, like they had, to be a blessing to the surrounding nations. Because as a result of the nation splitting, the entire economy split. Their military was split. And for the next two to three centuries, there's just chaos between these kingdoms. After 300 years, the northern part of the kingdom was invaded by Assyria, and Assyria just carts off all of the leading citizens, spreads them all over the Assyrian empire. They import lots of other people, and essentially, 300 years after Solomon was king, the northern kingdom no longer exists. And then the southern kingdom, known as Judah in that time, it's on the verge of being invaded by Assyria. And right in the midst of that, God sends a prophet, Isaiah. And he speaks to the people, and he writes down his prophecy, which has been preserved to where we have it as part of our English Bibles. So again, imagine all the chaos, all the lost opportunity. They're on the verge of implosion and invasion, and God speaks to this prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says to the nation. He says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. I'm going to do something through you, Israel, something so big that all non-Jewish people will look in your direction and you will be a light to the rest of the world. And when they, they heard this prophecy, they had to think, this is a joke. You're making this up. We're not going to be a light. Like we can't even handle our own lives. He says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And again, salvation Like, we can't even save ourselves. And then soon after this prophecy, the Assyrians did invade, and the southern kingdom of Judah became a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire, and another 300 years of chaos goes by. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, they come into the city, they tear down parts of the walls, the city is sacked and destroyed, and just like God said, Solomon's temple temple was destroyed, and the best and the brightest and the royals are just carted off into, uh, the most important cities are carted off into captivity. In fact, if you, if you want to read something fantastic, maybe it's been a long time, uh, maybe you've never read it, but in the Old Testament, read the book of Daniel that captures part of this. It's just a fascinating book in the Old Testament. The economy is in shambles. The military is just completely decimated. And right in the midst of that context of this 300-year period, God sends another prophet, Malachi. And again, his words are impossible. When people heard these prophecies, they thought, there is no reason in the world to believe any of this. There's certainly no reason to somehow believe that this is coming from the mouth of God. Here's what God said to the nation through the prophet Malachi. My name, again, will be great among the nations, 
from where the sun rises to where it sets. To again, which they thought, no, no, it won't. Your name is mocked among the nations. Your name is a joke among the nations. No one looks, nobody looks at us and thinks, oh, I want to worship their God. No, from the standpoint of those on the outside of other nations, God is pathetic. He can't even take care of his people. I mean, the name of Zeus will be great. And had they known, they would have said, well, get ready because Alexander, he's coming and he's going to unify all the Greek states and he will actually be called Alexander the Great. Alexander's name is going to be great, but not our God, but he wasn't finished. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So hundreds of years before, God says my name will be known throughout the world. That in any place in the world where people worship, there will always be a group of people that recognizes me. And in 2023, we know for a fact that this promise and this prophecy has come true. And it makes no sense. Because today, on every continent, there are thousands, if not millions, gathering in the name of this great God, But the people of Judah in this context, they couldn't hear it. They couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't believe it. Why would they? They'd already been overrun by Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And then in 63 BC, Rome sent Pompey into the region, eventually known as Pompey the Great, into the area of Judah and Galilee, where he would conquer village after village and town after town, eventually ending up outside the walls of Jerusalem. There would be a siege. He would eventually breach the walls, conquer the city, annex that whole area into the Republic of Rome. When Pompey breached the city, we're told that 12,000 were slaughtered. He rode his horse up to and onto the Temple Mount, which would have been very offensive to the Jews. And he slaughtered many of the priests. He got off his horse and he walked right into the temple. And he walked right into what would have been considered the God Vault. Because every, every temple in pagan culture had what they referred to as the God Vault, where they would keep their idol or their representation of their God. And then at certain festivals or certain times of the year, they would bring their idol around, out and cart it around so that people could worship their idol. And Pompey wanted to see this great God that these Jews had fought so valiantly to defend. So he walks right into what's referred to as the Holy of Holies. He pulls back, to the, back the curtain, and the whole room is empty because the Jews had no idol. They had no image. They, they had nothing from the Roman perspective to, to worship. So from the Roman perspective, what a silly, pathetic little religion this was. And thus began the occupation of what we would call the Holy Land. So God was partially correct. The, the descendants of Abraham would, in fact, become a nation, but that unbelievable, incoherent, impossible promise would end there. Because all the nations would clearly not be blessed through Israel and through Abram. Israel would not become a light to the non-Jewish people. Israel would not become a light to the Gentiles. The Jewish God would not be worshipped throughout the world. Maybe Zeus, but not Yahweh, because no one's interested in a God that can't take care of his own people. And that's what makes the story of Christmas so remarkable. Because when things were as hopeless as they could possibly be, And the promise of Abraham was as out of reach as it could possibly be. The Apostle Paul would 
just a few years later, would look back, he would put all the pieces together, and he would write it this way. When the set time had fully come, in other words, when God had everything just the way he wanted it, an expanding empire, exporting a common language so that the majority of people in the region could understand it, a highway system unlike anything the world had ever known, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that had finally made peace between nations and tribes that had been warring for generations, when at last, when at last there was a mechanism and a way to, for God to get the undivided attention of the world and to export this message that would ultimately bless everyone on the planet when things were just the way God wanted them and when everyone had lost hope and no one was expecting God. God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was, and every one of you know her name. How is that possible? Because now when you consider the backstory, the unbelievable becomes remarkable. Why? Because everyone in the world knows the virgin's name. Today in this month, all over the world, on every continent, in hundreds of languages, people are going to tell the story, and they know the name of this teenage nobody from this hick town, growing up in a village in a vassal state, operated and run by Rome, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And her people had not felt favored or that God was near them in a very, very long time. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Yeshua, in Latin, Jesus. And he will be called great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. God is keeping his promise. But like the promise that he made to Abram, this promise to Mary made no sense that her son, his kingdom, will never end. So in the end, this is one of the countless facts that for me make the scriptures so completely trustworthy. It's why every single one of them, us, should read them on a regular basis. Because an impossible promise and prophecy made and documented thousands of years before comes true. It should get our attention. God keeps his promises. God kept his complete promise to Abraham. And in the end, God did exactly what he promised to Abraham thousands of years before, which to us seems like an eternity. But to a God who created the universe, who transcends space and time and physics, this is a blink. God kept his promise through his, through, to Abram that every single nation in the world would be blessed through him. And Israel would, in fact, become a light to the Gentiles. And from that part of the world, God sent his son Jesus. And through his life, through his teachings, through his death and his resurrection, that part of the world became a light just as God promised. And every year, hundreds of thousands of people will come from all over the world to visit this part of the world, to celebrate in the region where this light began to shine and emanate. And the Jewish people, in fact, became a light to the Gentiles. And most of you... I think all of us, most of you listening, we're not Jewish, which means we Gentiles, we ultimately 
worship a Jewish Savior, a Jewish God. Because the God that Christians worship is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the thing that makes the Christmas story so believable is no one would have made this up. This couldn't have been made up. And this this stretched over so many hundreds and thousands of years that the thread was not always evident. And people lost track and he lost sight. They lost sight, but we're on this side of things. And we see that during that entire period of time, God was behind the scenes working, always working, getting the world ready for the thing that he ultimately decided to do in the moment that sin entered the world. The Christmas story really began thousands of years before the first Christmas, and it continues to unfold 2,000 years after that first Christmas morning. So why Christmas? It's the title of the message. Title of the series. Well, the answer to answer that question is simple. You, me, everyone needed Christmas. And God would work out the story of Christmas on the world stage in, in a way that would involve some of the most significant people ever known to history, and they would all become footnotes <laughs> in the story of the birth of a Jewish carpenter that would ultimately change the world. And that through him, The Jews did, in fact, as promised, become a light to the Gentiles, that through Jesus, the Jewish God would be worshipped all over the world, that through Jesus, salvation would, in fact, come to every nation, every tribe, every people, everywhere. Through Christmas, we're reminded in the most extraordinary way, and some of you need to hear this, that God is active even when it seems like he's not. And through this extraordinary story, we're reminded on a personal, personal level that God is interested in the affairs of men and women and that he is interested in the affairs of you by name, your life, in a personal level. God sent his son not simply to be the savior of the world. He sent his son to be the savior of your world in your context. It's a reminder that even when circumstances argue to the contrary, God can be trusted. Even when circumstances are such, it seems like there's no way God cares, that he's not aware, he's not listening, that God would ever come through for me. It is a reminder that our Heavenly Father keeps his promises. So why Christmas? Because the world needed Christmas. Because the world needed and needs hope. The world needed and needs Christmas. And it turns out it wasn't just the world that needed Christmas. It turned out that God needed Christmas too. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm just so grateful that we have the text that we have. We know so much was lost over the years. But Father, I believe you were instrumental in making sure that we do have what we have. And to know the bigger narrative and the bigger story that takes place and how all the pieces truly fit together, it's just extraordinary. And I'm so grateful. And I pray for all of us, Father, as we enter the season where it just seems like our schedules get super overloaded and things become more demanding and sometimes we get anxious about some of the individuals we may be spending the holidays with or the stress of what we can't do or we can't buy or can't give. And Father, I pray, God, that for those of us 
everyone listening and for myself, that God, you would help us to just not get caught up in the craziness of it, but that, Father, that we, we would find peace in knowing that ultimately, regardless of what culture has made this season, that at the core, there were early followers that just wanted to make it focus on the birth of the Savior of the world. And I pray for each of us, Father, that you would cause that to be an anchor for us as we look to a new year. And Father, that it would give us hope and a sense of direction. And I pray, Father, for all of us that we would sense in a, a fresh and maybe not experienced before way you in our lives, you working in our lives, and ultimately your peace. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.